Hello and welcome to this RCBS Knowledge Webinar produced for BSAV Congress 2020. The theme of this um, webinar this morning is how to become a quality improvement ambassador to improve clinical standards in your practice. My name is Lou Northway. I'm a registered veterinary nurse based at Wendover Heights Veterinary Centre in Buckinghamshire. Um, and I'm going to be sharing with you how I've um, implemented quality improvement into various different elements of my working day um, in clinical practice. So I wanted to start my um, lecture today by sharing this quote, which I found online, which I thought was absolutely wonderful. Um, quality improvement is the combined and unceasing efforts of everyone to make changes that will lead to better patient outcomes, better system performance and better care and um, better professional development. Now, when we think of this quote in a bigger capacity, it is what veterinary medicine and nursing is. We are always striving to do better, learn more and improve patient care. The thing about quality improvement, which it comes from a slightly different angle, is that how we work in practice ourselves, how we deal with situations um, and how we can use resources to assess how we're doing and make things even better. So firstly, when you think of quality improvement, you might not actually know really what quality improvement is or what sort of tasks that would involve in practice. So on the screen now, you'll see various different things that you can start doing um, in practice. The emphasis of my lecture today is going to be focused around um, clinical audits, but quality improvement is so much more than just doing auditing. Um, do, performing team discussions, opening up the learning environment, looking and discussing evidence-based nursing and vet med um, papers together, um, providing standard operating procedures, checklists, guidelines um, and protocols for your team to help support them every day at work um, and also benchmarking. So it's very hard to know how you're doing unless you measure it and also compare yourself against other practices or perhaps another branch. So when I first started looking at QI, one of the first things I thought to myself was, how is my team doing? How are we doing as a practice? Um, because I honestly thought we were doing really, really awesome. Um, and it wasn't until we started measuring how we were doing, so in the implementation of audits, did we see actually that things were good, but they weren't fantastic in all areas and there was definitely room to be done. Um, to be improved um, and I think when you start doing audits in your practice too you will soon realize that actually um, there's always room for improvement even if you're doing really really well um, but it's, it's definitely an eye-opener. For me um, after the first few months of doing clinical audits um, I presented the evidence to my team to show them um, how we were doing and it was um, I think they were quite surprised actually um, so in particular when we were talking of our post-op neutering audits and things like that and I'm going to cover that in more detail in a few slides time but we can all assume we're doing a good job because we all hope we're doing a good job but unless we actually measure how we're doing we can't truly know that and the only way to know that is to do a clinical audit now you might be thinking oh clinical auditing it sounds like it's going to be really monotonous really boring really long-winded really complicated and i just don't have the time um, or the mental capacity right now to take that on board well i'm going to stop you right there because actually auditing is not that complicated and rcvs knowledge have produced some wonderful resources to help guide us through the process so this is a section of one of their infographics on auditing and you can see very quick clearly um, number one choose a topic so you can think of an area in your practice that you'd like to have a closer look at and I'm going to make some suggestions in a few slides time once we have looked at 
and we have chosen our topic well what specifically do you want to look at and improve what of, what is of interest to you and then you want to be setting a target so you want to be thinking about um, so if we're doing this well right now how much better do we want to make it and you should make those goals realistic then we want to collect the data again you don't have to do anything particularly fancy if you're a whiz on Microsoft Excel then by all means use that um, but when I first started collecting data in practice I literally put pen to paper and drew out some tables um, which I stuck up in my prep room um, whereby the team would write down data for me um, relating to this was anesthesia actually at the time for this 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 initial audit um, and from that I then inputted it into Excel at a later date and then we're going to look at it that's a fun bit so you know what were we doing well what are we doing not so well um, and then where do you go from here so I then go and look at evidence-based nursing um, protocols or vet med protocols depending on what it is we're looking at um, and then I present evidence to the team and we together come up with ideas and solutions for change and then we implement that change then it's a case of re-auditing and then reviewing again so it's an ongoing cycle it never ever finishes but this is a two-page um, document which you can download from the RCBS Knowledge website. Again, it's just a walkthrough as I've just basically gone over anyway. Um, but you'll, it is very simple and straightforward. And you don't have to do a really comprehensive, in-depth, um, looking at multiple things to start with. Just choose something nice and simple. Um, and I'll give you some suggestions in just a moment. So what can you audit? So let's think of clinical topics to start with. So this is probably audits that will appeal to uh, the vet or vet nurse team. So post-op temperatures, probably the one I would recommend you start with as it's probably the easiest one to collate data um, and also to look at and um, review sort of what you're doing. So how many of your patients are coming back from operations with suboptimal temperatures? So hypothermia is extremely common in our anaesthetized patients. So um, in a month, how many patients did actually come back to bed normothermic? Um, when we first did this in my practice, we were finding that most dogs were coming back nice and toasty, um, but our feline patients were actually um, suffering with hypothermia more. So we uh, um, adapted, updated our protocols um, in order to improve um, our results and it did make a massive difference and it has ongoing and, and you can make it into a fun thing as well so for example you know how many um, patients that sorry the nurse that brings back the patients with the most normal temperatures a week gets a prize or something like that there are loads of fun ways of um, improving standards um, drug dosing errors um, and reporting of of those drug dosing area errors so in my practice we implemented what we call a whoopsie book um, so this is an informal um, book whereby nurses can write down or, or vets or um, support staff when they've encountered a drug dosing error so it's been noted on the clinical notes when the drugs have been dispensed written on a hospital hospital sheet x y and z and then we look at the factors surrounding that um, pre-medication protocols so are they actually optimal for what you're doing so um, how many patients are requiring uh, rescue analgesia intra-op in response to noxious stimuli things like that you can look at and audit um, you can look at adverse events during anesthesia so how many patients were suffering with low blood pressure during procedures and again if anyone's interested i have written um, there's a case case study on um, an anesthesia audit which i did which covers actually quite a lot of those first few points um, and that was a real eye-opener and very interesting um, post-op wound complications is one we're going to cover in quite a lot of detail during this 
webinar um, because um, this was the the audit which I won an award for this year um, and it's something that I've been doing now for the last three and a half years in practice um, and it has been a real eye-opener as I'm sure you'll agree um, as we go through. Um, Post-operative gastrointestinal upset so thinking about how many of your patients I find this is typically a canine patients come back with um, vomiting or diarrhea post-op um, and then we can look at other things as well so IV catheter site infections and phlebitis um, how many patients a week you're seeing in kennels with generalized diarrhea and vomiting um, is it seasonal things like that if you can audit that ongoing and then it'll sort of guide you as to sort of changes in your biosecurity at certain times of the year and also kennel cough cases again because they come in flurries if you have non-clinical members of your team, um, so perhaps your client care team, um, then you can ask them to audit different areas of your practice as well. So the frequency of cleaning tasks that are undertaken, so we may have lovely, beautiful protocols written up and checklists and tick sheets and things like that, but are, is it actually being done? Um, if not, why not? And that's the time then to think as a team, is it a time is it because of time? Is it because of a lack of people um, and things like that? Um, missed appointments again. How many wasted appointments are you having in a week or a month? Um, this is something we look at occasionally in my practice. And sometimes it can be, you know, a significant amount of wasted their hours. Um, and therefore, you know, we have to think of the reasons why there. So can we be sending out reminders, um, communicating with our clients in different ways? Um, looking at client feedback is quite interesting as well you can audit that so the nature of the feedback so is it financial is it emotional um, and things like that and then having discussions with your team and making changes as appropriate um, and then this one is a very common one in my practice frequency of prescriptions not sent to the correct branch so I'm sure many of you have branch surgeries um, we process all of our repeat prescriptions at our mains um, center and then they get sent to our branch surgery but sometimes even though we have many systems in place um, it doesn't always happen so we have to be looking at the reasons why that may be happening and um, then productivity as well so is it actually realistic how many operations are booked in each day is it meaning that your team are then having to work late um, and things like that so you can look at the average amount of procedures that are being done is, is it actually working for your team um, um, and things like that so once you start looking at different topic areas to audit the opportunities are endless and it can be quite difficult then I find <laughs> to limit yourself and how much you're looking at week to week so who is best to take lead in practice well personally I think one person is best to become the the quality improvement ambassador so that's the person with the main interest in making improvements now it's quite a large job um, depending on how much you want to look at so what I would recommend is that the QI ambassador then looks out in their team at who has what interests so if you had a, a team member with an interest in anesthesia then it may be sensible to get them to audit um, and look at sort of your anesthesia protocols in practice if you have a nurse that's really interested in wound management then it would be pop a really good idea to get them involved in um, setting up and monitoring and auditing the patients coming back for their post-op checks looking at their wounds specifically and things like that because I do believe that if you have a passion it really does push perseverance and also productivity so with your audits it can be um, quite a lot of work to keep it up especially alongside your normal in practice clinical role um, but if you're interested in what you're looking at and reviewing then by all means I think you'll, you'll do much much better 
So I'm going to share with you now some of the results from the audits at my practice um, and it's specifically we're going to be looking at post-op complications in all patients and procedures and post-op temperatures. Um, I did plan on having more data for this year than what is in this slideshow um, but due to COVID-19 and furlough um, I am lacking a few months so we're going to do some retrospective um, discussions here as well looking at the last three years. So um, bitch spay audits. So um, when we have patients coming in for neutering, when they come back for their post-op check, um, we always obviously make a record of whether there are any abnormalities or not. And back in 2017, I started using the RCVS Knowledge Vet Audit Spreadsheet, which you can download from the website for free. And this is a very simple, straightforward um, spreadsheet that you can use. And it helps you just basically record the incidences of complications and then every couple of months you upload your data along with hundreds of other practices in the UK that are also um, submitting their anonymized data and you can see how your practice fits alongside others. So when I first started doing this the first sort of couple of months for our bitch space at least things were looking pretty good I was like excellent we're below the national average that's great so our complication rate is low fantastic However, you'll see April to October 2018, we had a lot more complications in our bitch space. And I'm gonna talk you through some of the reasons why we thought since this may happen. Um, and then again, it reduces and reduces and then, hope, and, and then into the end of last year, our complication rate was um, much below the average, which is fantastic due to many changes that we've made as a result. Looking at our dog castrates, um, this was the, sort of the eye-opener for us when we started doing audits. We, fact, we found that our dog castrates were having a higher incidence of complications compared to the national average. So why was this? Um, and as the years and the months have gone by, again, we have made improvements. Um, but there are things out of your control which you simply will not be able to change. But from a clinical perspective in practice, and even from a communication perspective, um, we can make a big difference. So what complications were we seeing? So in our canine neutering patients, minor complications, so just erythema, some swelling, um, occasionally seromas. We have a large proportion of young, very bouncy dogs at the practice. Um, so that was um, often encountered um, patients with clipper rash. However, there were more serious complications encountered, um, such as wound infections, suture reactions, patients interfering with their wounds and sometimes removing their sutures, um, complete wound breakdown, diarrhea or vomiting, prolonged lethargy, inadequate analgesia. So these were all comments made on the clinical notes. So we're going to go on to cats and then we're going to work through the changes and the discussions we had around the complications that we saw. So with our cat space, um, nicely below the national average on the complication rate front, which is great. Um, but one thing we have noticed with our cats is we did have more cats not coming back for their post-op checks comparative to dogs. So whilst no, no news is good news, um, we can't say 100% that there were no complications encountered. Um, with our feline patients, most often there was some erythema. Um, if cats had in, um, skin sutures placed, sometimes they removed them. Um, we did have some cats with seromas, suture reactions, diarrhea or vomiting, or although it was far less frequently than in dogs, inadequate analgesia and lethargy. So what did we do? 
do um, to start with and um, we reviewed wounds so we were looking at the pre-op advice we were giving to owners we were finding that some dogs were coming in um, from their sort of morning walk in the woods covered in mud ahead of their operation so not really ideal when you want a nice sterile surgical field so just advising owners please keep them clean on and dry on the morning of their operation and ideally give them a bath the week before if they are a dog that likes to go on many adventures in the woods um, considering patients which would be at higher risk of wound infections as well so um, patients that perhaps had hypothyroidism or other immune mediated conditions so just taking extra care with those patients and the clipper type that was used so in our canine patients we were finding a lot that we had a lot of scrotal erythema and clipper rash so we changed the clipper type we were using in practice to much smaller fine toothed clippers not to cause irritation um, because when we were finding when patients were having clipper rash they were wanting to rub their itchy scrotums on the floor or really trying to lick and sometimes were managing to lick and therefore that's why we were having a higher incidence of complications in these patients we also looked at our skin scrub technique now all of us in practice when we started discussing this we're doing slightly different things and it's not to say that anyone in particular was wrong but it was all what we've been taught over the years at various points so what we did is we arranged for a skin um a surgical skin prep cpd um lunch and learn um where they presented evidence-based um sort of veterinary nursing and we adapted our skin preparation techniques as a result so that possibly did play a fact of play a factor in the improvements that we saw. Um, the overall aseptic approach to sort of preparing the skin, so making sure you're wearing gloves at all stages of skin preparation, and also wound coverings at the end of surgery. So making sure that um, the wounds were covered for at least 24 hours post-surgery um, to allow the skin edges to knit together. Um, and then when we think of our pet owners, post-op wound protection options, giving them options is always a good idea. But one of the key changes we made with our canine patients was to um, swap over from routinely using um, the traditional plastic buster collars to um, pet clothing or pet shirts um, which would cover up their surgical sites and we were finding that compliance with pet owners is much better using the pet clothing option compared to the the, the large rigid um, buster collars because as, as I'm sure you can all appreciate a large bouncy Labrador with a buster collar on is not easy <laughs> so um, that did make a massive difference um, when we looked at gastrointestinal disturbances as I said before this was more commonly seen in our canine patients than our feline patients but we reviewed our starvation times so traditionally we would be advising 12 hour or more fasting um, and now we allow our pet owners to give them a small bedtime snack as well um, so there isn't such a large fast between their last meal and their operation um, stress as well so how can we reduce stress to patients if we had any that we knew were particularly anxious about coming to the practice um, allowing them to have a later admission or making sure they'd be done first and not have to wait in their kennel all morning um, because we get a, a, a fight or flight reflex with these stressy patients and it can cause colitis so just trying to sort of be sensible with them there and um, we reviewed the drugs used intra and post-op so specifically non-steroidal so the timings of when we gave them um, just in case any that in case there was any perioperative hypotension which was affecting um, GI mucosal blood flow and um, we wanted to make sure that everything would be nice so 
Um, now they have their non-steroidals intra-op if their blood pressure is lovely or on recovery rather than standard at the beginning. Um, we did have a discussion about preemptive analgesia and we agreed whilst it was in the animal's best interest to have it before the onset of noxious stimuli and inflammation, we were going to be implementing the use of different types of analgesic approaches, so local anaesthesia for example. Um, so everything and um, we, we were we were still addressing analgesia it wasn't a problem and um, we have considered probiotics this at the start of this year this was something we were going to trial and see if it made a difference um, but we didn't have the chance to um, implement that as COVID-19 blew up um, and then Obviously, in a veterinary practice, the chance of an infectious component is always there. So if you have flurries of patients coming back two, three days post-op with gastroenteritis or hemorrhagic gastroenteritis, it's worth doing an infection control screen um, and just swabbing your practice and seeing if you're growing any nasties anywhere. Um, we have done this before, um, and it's definitely something that we should be doing at least sort of twice a year, I think, anyway, um, to make sure that our cleaning techniques are um, efficacious. Um, if you have a, a patient um demographic which are raw fed again thinking about uh, whether we're going to be um, barrier nursing them because we really should be um, and are we actually going to feed the patient raw meat in the hospital um, depends where you work some practices won't feed raw um, within the practice because it's the risk to other patients and also to staff um, but it's worth having the discussion with the owner but there are so many factors I'm sure you can see already you think blimey like you've gone over so much but um, when you start auditing you can start just thinking of like one of these things okay well we're gonna change one of these factors to see if it makes a difference and then if it doesn't let's look at something else and you keep going like that um, and sometimes it's a combination of changes that makes all the difference okay um, sometimes it was commented on the post-op notes the owner would have said um, Yes, um, they were absolutely fine. They didn't move for three days when they got home. Um, and of course, you know, to a pet owner, the pet looks rest, relaxed and settled. Um, but actually, you know, if it's a cat, for example, then pain could, could have been a problem. Um, so we, we did look at the pre-medication protocols, the types of drugs that we were using and also what we were sending patients home with on the duration um, and we made some adaptations as a result. So it is always worth having a, a discussion with the owners, um, you know, do you know what pain will look like in your pet if they're uncomfortable? Um, because the perception of pain in uh, or what owners perceive their pets to look like is often very different to what we, we know they look like. Um, so it might be an idea um, to give them guidance there um, but yes it's it's just one of those things that can be overlooked I think um, you know a, a nice quiet dog because they're really painful and they don't want to move yes it makes life easier for the owner but you know it's not really fair on the patient so this is something definitely to look at okay and um, once you've been looking at your post-op neutering um, patients for a few years you might start thinking oh actually I want to look at everybody um, and this is something that I started doing this year in January so from January onwards I started auditing every single patient no matter what they were coming in for GGA or sedation wise ASA scores one to five so that's our healthy to our super sick um, and also looking at other things like um, their wound scores and also making a much um, sort of more uh, definitive memo of what the complication was now the reasons why we brought in wound scoring was when you look at clinical notes on a computer everybody's clinical notes are very different and there, it does sort of uh, 
you can can perceive what they mean or interpret things very differently so it was to standardize so now um, the team will score patients zero to five um, depending on what type of situation is going on with the wound um, and then again we're also going to be we post-op temperature uh, record for all patients now as well so this is just something ongoing um, you don't have to look at these many different things but this gives me so much scope and so much information um, and just really helps us review what, how we're doing it in practice so um, I say I, I am limited um, I've only got two months worth of data here because of COVID-19 um, but you can see um, here we were looking at post-op temperatures and the majority of our patients were 37 or above which is great that's that is what I advise the team would be a good a good way to go so um, that's what where we were aiming but we were we did still have patients that were 36 to 36.9 which isn't ideal so what type of patients were those specifically on my spreadsheet I can see what species were coming in colder and typically yes it's cats we know cats um, really struggle um, under anaesthesia on the temperature front so making much more of an effort with those guys um, and sometimes you'll get results and it'll actually help you um, sort of source more equipment for your practice so for example we now thankfully have two warm air heating systems um, but prior to doing audits and seeing how many patients were hypothermic on recovery we only had one so we'd have to prioritize who was having what piece of equipment um, and that was the same for monitoring equipment actually as well so having results of complications and issues actually does help you build evidence to prompt your employers to enable you to get more equipment which can only be a good thing um, but as you can see for January and February overall patient outcomes um, we did have quite a few patients lost to follow and these are typically our feline patients so again it's looking at why aren't pet owners coming back is it because uh, they think they have to pay is it because um, the stress of getting their cat in their cat basket again for their post-op check things like that is it because the dog's completely back to normal so the owner doesn't perceive the need for the post-op check things like that um, but you can see the vast majority, no problems. Um, and it, yeah, it is just really, really interesting um, to stop and have a think about why you're getting the results that you're getting. Um, and, in, and including your team is really important. And I have just covered this already about the loss to follow. But that's another audit that's quite simple. So out of in a month, how many patients don't come back that should be coming back? Um, and that's quite a nice one to start with if you haven't done this before. Um, the Southampton wound scoring, as I say, this was what we implemented um, actually the middle of last year because we, as I say, it was very difficult for me sometimes to interpret or decide <laughs> um, which category to put my patients in. Um, so we, we made it more specific and this has worked really, really well. Um, and this, they, the, in all consult rooms, there's just a little chart on the wall and they will know that they just have to score them one to, I'm sorry, zero to five, depending on what's going on. Um, and then you have to look at the wounds in more detail. So those that are broken down. Well, what specifically were they? So um, the dental wounds that broke down were actually extraction sites. So after having big flaps done. Um, and I can remember from recording this that the soft tissue surgeries that broke down were big um, neoplastic mass removals. Um, so typically poor wound healing, big areas, things like that. Um, but it is interesting sometimes just to look and see which wounds in particular are not healing particularly well. So is it the approach that we need to change, sutures, wound management, post-op, things like that. 
um, and I can see at the bottom here under species all the different types of species that we see so you can see we're quite a dog heavy practice 80% of dogs really I would say are our patient demographic um, followed by cats and then we do have a, um, a fairly large exotic caseload although January and it, the, the half of February that's included in this audit was a bit on the quiet front there. So and neutering post-op complications. So as I say, you, you jot in all your complications on the RCVS Knowledge Vet Audit spreadsheet um, and then it gives you a breakdown and shows you what your complication rate is. So up until mid-February, our complication rate was 18.3%. Um, and I think at that point, the complication rate was around 22% national average across the board um, for dogs and cats. I'm sorry, for dogs at least. Um, so, yeah, it's just um, it's quite nice to always have a flick at the end of the month and just say, oh, where are we sitting? And you will find month to month, year to year, things will fluctuate. I do find seasonal changes. So in the months where it gets warm or it gets very wet, we have more problems with wound infections. And again, I think it's to do with um, having sort of nicer environments for the bugs to grow um, so you will find that there are changes so um, the national audit for small animal neutering this is what um, it looks like if you are, uh, scan the qr code using your smartphone now it will take you directly to the website but it's super super straightforward to use um, and download so this is what i would encourage you to do to start with if you don't want to do temperatures or loss to follow appointments start doing the small animal neutering audit um, it will really, really open your eyes um, and it is really interesting. So, for example, as a veterinary nurse myself, um, I could be consulting one day um, and I see maybe one complication. But over the course of the week, my colleagues see a couple each day. And then by the end of the week, we could have, you know, 25 patients with wound infections. But because there's only been, you know, one of us on each day, you sometimes don't put all the problems together and actually realise that there is an issue going on. So it really does help with surveillance. Um, I give myself um, half a day to a whole day every other week to record the data. Um, and then a whole day once a month to accumulate it all look at the results comparative to the previous month and then issue a report to the team um, and say so everybody gets to have a look at that um, and then there are also different types of um, auditing and surveillance systems um, from RCBS Knowledge Now Vet Audit. So there's a canine cruise ship registry um, where veterinary surgeons are encouraged to report um, the instances of complications in canine patients that have had cruise ship surgery um, and also antimicrobial resistance audit. So there's, there's various different ones that you can do. But those of you that are watching this for the first time and you're not sure where to start, I would definitely start with the National Audit for Small Animal Neutering. So how do I make changes based on the results of my audits? So you've got your figures, things could be looking really good, things could be looking less good, um, but what are you going to do about it? So go back to the evidence base to start with. So the, the best bit of information I can give you really is to think about, so make a spider diagram, so put your problem in the middle or your result, um, and then spider, spider diagram off from that, all of the things that you think could influence the result that you're getting. And then from that, go to evidence-based veterinary nursing um, places like the RCVS Knowledge Library and look at the evidence to back up just to have a look and see 
if what you're doing in practice at the moment is in line with the most up-to-date evidence does it still make sense to be done that way so like i said right at the beginning in regards to skin preparation there's loads of different opinions there as to which is the right correct technique well, well go and look at the evidence and see what it says and that's where you can start making your small changes um, but there's lots of free um, resources available for veterinary nurses online via the RCVS Knowledge website and I recommend you all go and have a look at those. But go back to the evidence base um, and then take that evidence that you get forward to your team. Because sharing the audit results, often people are really interested in that, I find. They want to know what we're doing well, what's not going so well, um, if there's been anything significant happen. Um, and things like that and um, present the evidence with that and then also what you have your personal recommendations for change so what you think might work to help improve things um, and also ask them what do they think because remember um, your team will be very experienced around you everyone will have different opinions and if you collaborate your um, ideas alongside evidence um, you're much more likely to create a really positive outcome but getting everyone on board is the main thing I think everyone um, fears that you know it's pointless because no one likes change but if you present evidence of you know why change needs to happen um, often people will walk forwards with you um, so stopping blame culture in practice. So um, blame culture is when we point the finger at each other. Why didn't you do this? You should have done that. Um, and things like this. And you're thinking, oh, well, Lou, why are you talking about blame culture now? We just talked, we've just spoken about clinical audits. Um, well, what I am going to be talking about next is um, significant event audits. So these are audits that are performed after something significant happens it doesn't have to be something significantly bad it could be something significantly awesome um, but typically um, they are very helpful in times when things go wrong um, many many of us well none of us go to work wanting to make a mistake um, so it's important to remember that when something does happen that individual that's involved did not want that to happen so what type of problems do we see in practice quite commonly drug over or underdose the wrong drugs being administered or the wrong fluid, wrong drug given to wrong patient, air in giving set, closed adjust adjustable pressure, pressure limiting valve on your anaesthetic breathing system, which is caused pulmonary barotrauma in your patient. Maybe you've had an oxygen supply failure. And then what we all really, really um, struggle with is patient deaths. So when they're expected and, and more often more difficult to deal with when they're unexpected. So significant event audits look at the system factors, the human factors, the patient factors, owner factors, communication factors and other factors. Some, some um, of the things we look at in practice don't cover all of these different um, factors, um, but it is always important to consider them. Um, and you can see on the right of the screen that RCS Knowledge have um, created a really simple walkthrough to help us manage this. But doing significant event audits in practice is a game changer because it changes the culture because it's not what that one person didn't do. It's looking at all of the different factors that led on to the event happening because often the person that makes the mistake is just at the right at the end of a long chain of events so it's taking it taking a few steps back and looking at the big picture so we can look at a few examples now of when things have gone wrong um, and when and sort of like how we can use an sea to make things well move forwards basically in a positive light so example one um rachel the student um 
was setting up her breathing system ahead of a rabbit spay. The vet was in a rush and asked her to be really quick. Um, Sally, the registered veterinary nurse, um, had phoned in six, so Rachel was actually left on her own. Um, so anyway, they cracked on. Um, 30 seconds after anaesthetic induction, Rachel noticed the rabbit wasn't breathing. Um, and then on closer inspection, um, the vet noticed that the valve was shut on the breathing system. Um, and actually the patient went into respiratory arrest due to um, valve occlusion, followed by cardiac arrest and the patient died. Now, straight away, it would be very easy here to blame Rachel for not le leak testing her system. It could be very easy um, to blame the vet for um, not um, sort of giving Rachel time to set up properly. Um, and there's loads of finger pointing that can be done here. But the way we use significant event audits is to stop the finger pointing because there are so many influencing factors here which led to this, this, this um, incident. So the system factors on that day was that um, Rachel didn't have suitable support. So what could you change in practice to help Rachel manage that situation if she's ever in it again? So maybe there could be an SOP or a guideline or a safety checklist um, for her to follow and run through and make sure she's fully ready um, for the next anaesthetic. So that could be something perhaps when Sally the RVN comes back into practice, she could do with Rachel um, and also make sure she's really happy and competent um, to be left on her own um, in situations like that. Um, the human factors could be that Rachel was worried about speaking up um, and that the vet was in a rush and she didn't want her to sort of think that she was being really slow. So she just cracked on and did her best. Um, the patient factors here as well, um, perhaps Rachel hadn't actually um, anaesthetised a rabbit before with the veterinary surgeon, uh, maybe she was unfamiliar with the anaesthetic equipment again, this is something that comes back to training, so making sure that there are systems in place to make sure everyone is on board with the equipment that's available, have they actually been shown, um, and things like that. Um, owner factors probably isn't an issue here because the incident was not non-client specific. Um, communication factors I think was a massive, a massive um, one here. So afterwards, probably Rachel, Sally and the vet should all sit down together and have a chat about it um, and come up with ways which they could stop this happening again in the future. So as I already mentioned a moment ago, drawing up a guideline and some checklists to help guide people through the setting up process and the importance of undertaking all the separate the tasks that need to be done. And then finally, are there any other factors that influence this incident? Well, on this occasion, it was a lack of time really overall. Um, perhaps the vet also was worried about anaesthetising a rabbit, maybe they're normally a dog, a dog vet, and there was some anxiety there. So perhaps um, the vet didn't have sort of as much patience as normal. So there, as I say, no one is to blame in any way, shape or form, but it's just thinking of ways where which you can create documents, guidelines, checklists, to have a physical resource to help each other, or a team chat, you can have a chat before you start. So from now on, they could say, all right, well, every time we're gonna anesthetize a rabbit in the future, we're gonna talk through the processes, what we're gonna do with the breathing system if they stop breathing, um, and things like that. Um, next example, um, Jessica is a member of the client care team. It's her first evening working on the front desk alone and unsurprisingly, it's very busy. Um, the nurse has just discharged Toffee, the, bit back, the bitch spade, back to her owners. But whilst at the desk, the owner states that they don't actually want the buster collar like the nurse suggested because Toffee won't like it. Jessica takes back the buster collar and continues serving another customer. The owner does not have any written post-op advice. 
The following morning, Toffee's owners phone in as she was as she removed her sutures overnight. So nightmare situation here, isn't it? And I think probably some of you have sat there and thought, mm, yeah, we've had something similar like this happen um, before as well. So I put this in because I, I had seen this happen many years ago when I was a student nurse um, and owner phoned in the morning to say, oh, my bitch has chewed out her stitches and her intestines are hanging out. And um, when the dog presented, yep, they were, they were hanging out. So that was a, a, a big, serious situation. That was about 12 years ago now, so a long time, but um, yeah. Okay, so what were the system factors here? So firstly, um, the nurse had discharged Toffee back to the owner. Um, that's all fine. She'd done it separately, out the way. But unfortunately, Jessica, the client care um, member of the team, she was busy serving a client. And even if the nurse had discharged Toffee in front of her, she probably wouldn't have heard the important information that um, the owner had been given. Equally, perhaps Jessica... Um, who is a member of the client care team hasn't had any training on the importance of post-op care we often assume that we know each other's job roles and we know who does what and who says what and what those important bits of information are but we need to be checking that um, the human factors here you say that um, Jessica was really busy serving a client so of course she would happily just take the buster collar back off the client not uh, the other client not really thinking about the big picture or the implications it's not her fault there um, but equally the, the nurse didn't give the owners any written post-op information so when we talk to pet owners they take in a very small amount of what we say to them so giving a pet owner written information reiterating the the really key points is essential um, and again you could recirculate those key bits of information around your client care team to make sure they're on board now the patient factors now we know that most dogs don't really appreciate having um, buster collars they don't but they are important when it comes to wound infection and um, preventing wound infections and as um, Toffee did removing her, her sutures so at this point, when Jessica took back the buster collar, perhaps if she'd been um, made aware, she could have provided the owner with um, a pet shirt. But again, she was working on her own. So perhaps um, the nurse should have checked with the owner. Are you happy with the pet shirt? I'm um, sorry, the buster collar or would you like a pet shirt? And again, it's not pointing the finger at the nurse, but it's just looking at all the factors. Like, are we offering our owners enough um, different sort of post-op um, wound protection methods? Or um, do we really need to have another think about this? So it's thinking out of the box. Um, the owner didn't probably didn't really understand the importance of the buster collar um, and, and was just hoping that she, she'll leave her wound alone. I'll make sure she doesn't lick. But actually, we know that as soon as the owners go to bed, that's when they have a jolly good lick. Um, but communi communication factors all around were here, really, um, between the nurse and the owner, owner in the front desk, um, member of the team um, we we could say you know we, we need to look at this and change how we we, we um, approach things here but yeah it's not a good situation but we can learn from this and that's the whole point what these significant event audits are about it's about problem shooting and looking at how you can change your systems of work to prevent or reduce these problems happening again in the future and that's what it's all about none of us want to make mistakes but when they do happen use it as a learning exercise to implement change. So in summary, what I would do is encourage all of your members um, of your team to be reflective. So every day think to yourself, how are we doing and how could we do things better? Think about members of your team with niche interests. 
what can my team members audit that is specific to their particular interest but keep it simple when you start if you overwhelm yourself um, you'll get very stressed and you'll probably lose interest so just choose one topic to start with and then build as you gather more confidence guidelines and checklists help support teams and improve patient safety and there's much evidence to support that and I would um, recommend that when you have junior members of your team working um, that guidelines really make all the difference giving them something to reference from this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it um, checklists are not designed to be patronizing or condescending or to point out what you don't know they are there to support us when we're having a busy day and we can even easily forget an essential bit of an equipment or perhaps a, a step in the setting up process so please embrace them please use them um, because they are there to help you and remember that veterinary medicine and nursing is constantly evolving so keep go back going back to the evidence base and update what you're doing in practice every year there will be new published guidelines and evidence papers released um, so make sure you're reading them you know why why are things changing because that's the published evidence and we should be learning from it so um with thanks to rcbs knowledge for their wonderful resources and if you scan the qr code now again using your phone um, you'll be able to um, be taken directly to their website um, whereby you can download all of their free wonderful resources which are great and will get you started um, but thank you very much for listening to my webinar i hope you enjoyed it and if anyone has any questions feel free to get in touch with me via one of the following ways